Welcome to episode 137 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I am not superhuman. I don't possess supernatural organizing skills. It may seem like it at times because I juggle a lot in my business and my work at home dad with two little kiddos. To illustrate my point, I'll share that it's been a couple of weeks since we moved and I'm still surrounded by lots of boxes. Of, of course, the essentials were unpacked right away. For me, that means the soda stream was set up the night we moved. <laughs> We found the pots and pans we needed to cook, although you'd be amazed at what you can accomplish with just one large frying pan. I've also learned that unpacking a box and knowing where the contents should go, well, it's not the same thing. And then we forget where we decided everything went, so there's a steady stream of questions that start with, honey, do you know where the... (laughs) Yeah, everything's under one roof, but where exactly? This has required a lot of innovating. When we can't find quite the exact tool, pan, shoes, jacket, etc. We need to figure out a replacement. Now, sometimes that's easy, and other times it really takes a bit of thinking outside the box. Like the time I used a keychain to unscrew and screw an electrical outlet so I could quickly baby-proof before I had unpacked our tools. The upside to all of this is that our kids love playing with the empty boxes, and the two large boxes in our kitchen make a nice island, and I've always wanted a kitchen with an island. (laughs) Your challenge for this week. When you reach for something and it's not there, be open to what can be used in its place. As the saying goes, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. If you hit a snag in your plans, take it in stride and think outside the box about how to move forward. Resilience cannot be purchased. It's earned each time we bounce back from serious hardship. Not letting the little things make you sweat is a good way to keep practicing for when something big comes along and tries to knock you off course. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest's last bad day was July 11th, 2001, a day that changed his life in a significant way. Experiencing a harrowing cycling accident was the catalyst to the seminal shift that changed his perspective, mindset, and action. Since then, he has been helping leaders make change stick at work and in their lives. In addition to executive coaching and speaking, he is the best-selling author of Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, and the founder of a leadership academy that helps people become the wealthiest people they know from the inside out. Please join me in welcoming Michael O'Brien. Hey, Robbie. How's it going? (laughs) Michael... Thank you so much for joining me from your office in New Jersey. Um, thrilled to have you here. I've known of you now for a while, and I'm, I'm glad to get to know you a little better. So as you know, this is a show about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So that's a great question. And I think in the leadership development category on like the social media networks in the Google sphere, I think we overcomplicate it. So for me, leadership is really about knowing your purpose as an individual or as an organization, um, really trying to paint an aspirational future, right? A compelling vision for the future, connecting with others, and then making it about their success. Mm. So it's like those four primary building blocks. If we can get really good at that, I think we, are, we, we go a long way in terms of defining what a leader is all about. So when did that first start to form in your head as your vision of leadership? In mini league, um, the mini division of the Penfield, New York Little League, where I was, you know, baseball was like my big thing growing up. Like I wanted to be either an astronaut, a Navy pilot, or a professional baseball player. And my professional baseball player aspiration was to play for the Toronto Blue Jays because what American kid doesn't grow up to desire to play for the Canadian team, right? So the national pastime, but I was like, I was going to go North. I grew up in Rochester, New York. So, but I, the day I I got to be the pitcher of the team 
was the day was like, wow, this whole leadership thing is pretty cool, right? Because the leader was involved in every in every pitch. They, you know, the pitcher was connecting with all the different players. It had to be a motivator for the future, right? To to win the game and be joyous and all that good stuff like that. So that moment, that was like that was a big moment. It was like I think I have some of the qualities to be a leader. And I love it. I, I was uh, at that age. I think I was like seven years old. Wow, six or seven years old. But it stays with you. I love how powerful you can describe the moment of standing on the mound and being aware of like the whole scene, like everything happening in the field around you. Like what's happening in front of you at home plate? Like, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So, Robbie, it was, it was, <laughs> I, yeah, it's very vivid. Like, I can, I can smell the smells. I can feel the warmth of the sunshine. Although it was sort of like springtime, because uh, that's when Little League season was back uh, in Rochester. So it wasn't really all that warm because Rochester's not all that warm. But I can, yeah, I feel all the different emotions. And when I got, when I got to go on the mound, I thought. You could have put me into Fenway Park. It was it was like the same type of feeling. I was so excited because I had been practicing my pitching with a lot of just like resilience and perseverance and in the backyard, like all those hours. And I was just waiting for my opportunity. And then I was in the middle of a the game. They were like, hey, Michael, you, you come in and pitch. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. I've been wanting wanting this day for my whole life. Right. And so, you know, as a six or seven year old, right. So it's, it really was your whole life. At that <laughs> yeah, point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I didn't really, you know, I didn't have many aspirations beyond that at that age, you know, except, well, you know, it wasn't likely that someone would say, Hey, Michael, put on a s- space suit and yes. go to the moon. <laughs> but I did dress up as an astronaut, you know, Neil Armstrong back in the day, I'm old enough to remember some of those, those days. So I dressed up, I had my old football helmet that we wrapped in aluminum foil and I pretended I was going to be an astronaut for Halloween. Of course you yeah. did. This is great. I love these early memories. Was there a um, a coach or a teacher that you kind of looked up to back then that helped you think about leadership in a positive way? Well, I'd love to say my dad and I will say my dad, but that's a little, you know, it's a pr- pretty traditional answer. But I would say the baseball coach I had when I turned 10. So the ages of 10, 11 and 12, which are really formative years when you think about, you know, growing up, right? So you're reaching adolescence. So it was uh, Mr. Ron Brown. And my favorite quote is a quote he gave us in his house. Like he brought the whole team together at the beginning of the season. And he basically did exactly what I just talked about with leadership, right? He knew his purpose. He was the coach of some young men or, you know, young kids, young boys. He painted aspirational future for our team. He connected with the parents and the kids on the team, and he made it about making them better, right? And so he gave us this quote, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that is by far my favorite quote. I'm not, I'm not one to you know, create uh, image memes you know, on the internet with quotes and stuff like that, but that quote, uh, to me, it really sort of has defined my life. You know, it's, um, it's about resilience and perseverance and mindset and a whole bunch of other wonderful qualities and he he uh helped me see what was possible you know in terms of my craft as a baseball player um i just loved his calmness too as a leader yeah i you know that uh that quote really makes me want to segue to sharing a little more about the introduction i gave you um, which I know was a pivotal moment in your life, but you were mentioning sort of resilience and when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And boy, is that the epitome of how you responded to this like harrowing, scary, life-threatening moment. Um, so you're were, you were out uh, bicycling, you, you were traveling, you took your bike with you to get a few miles in, you're at a boring conference, you're like, this is a beautiful space, let me go for a little ride, and never knowing that that decision was going to affect sort of everything in life. So tell us a little bit about that and sort of what were the after effects? Yeah, sure thing. I'd love to share. So yeah, I was at a company meeting. It was a classic offsite slash team building out in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, about 45 minutes north of Albuquerque. And I still have this bucket list desire, but back then I was crossing states off my bucket list, states I wanted to ride my bike in. Because I became, I switched from a baseball player to a cyclist somewhere around high school. 
And so I wanted to ride my bike in every state in the union. And I decided, hey, why not bring my bike out again, avoid the hotel gym. It was July. So I thought it was really smart. It was going to be one of those arrive on Monday, leave on Friday and death by PowerPoint in between type of meetings. And I just wanted to get some exercise in. And I was also training for a race. It was a local race that I really wanted to do well at. Yeah. And I came around the bend and a Ford Explorer had crossed the center line of the road and hit me head on going about 40 miles an hour. And if anyone's seen that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, it goes back a number of years called Sliding Doors. And, you know, and she, she gets basically canned from her advertising agency. And so the movie basically shows her life, you know, in, in sort of two parallel tracks. And I, I thought about that movie a lot as I look at that day, like, you know, five seconds on either side of that could, could have changed everything. And I just remember you know, that morning, I remember everything, the sound of me hitting the car into the windshield, the screech of his brakes. And when I regained consciousness, the EMTs were trying to save my life. And I knew I was, I knew I was in a world of hurt, you know, because just the thought of moving was painful. But you probably so, asked about your bike. Yeah, I did. Cause every cyclist knows like that's every cyclist does that. I was just like, I did. I asked him, it was really my way of like cutting the tension with a little bit. <laughs> I was like, Hey, how's my bike? And they just looked at me and they're like, your bike's fine. And, and I was mumbling and, you know, I, I couldn't even get my name right. Right. And I had no ID on me. So I was known as trauma pa- uh, patient mango until my wife came to ID me. And when I got on the helicopter, which I argued about, cause I was scared of flying back then. I didn't really want to take a helicopter. And they were like, you got to get on a helicopter because the ambulance ride is too far away. I told myself that if I live, like I'm going to live life differently. I'm going to stop chasing happiness because back then I conditionalized my life a lot. I would be, you know, I'll be happy when, right? I'll be happy when I get promoted. I'll be happy when this meeting's over. I'll be happy when I buy that new car. Um, and I was sort of just sort of chasing life, uh, much like a hamster on its wheel and without really a lot of intentionality. It's... Um as someone who has a passion for cycling and I live in a city and I've definitely had some close calls, just the idea of being hit head on, like it's, it's like you, you go out despite knowing that that could happen. And um, now it, the thing is that you, you found meaning in all of this, you found purpose so that it's not just this thing that happened to you, but it, it was a thing that shifted for you, your whole life and your whole purpose in what happens next. And it really, I feels like it's informed what you're doing today, which is nothing like what you were doing back, you know, in the the 1990s. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was a leader in my corporation back then, but, you know, now I'm, now I'm totally dedicated to helping people show up in the world, show up at work, show up in their life in in a way that can totally fulfill them. Uh, So they can achieve that version of self-mastery or craft mastery or success or however we want to define it. So, you know, as a leader in a corporate corporation, because I was the marketing director for a drug called Aricep, which is a drug for Alzheimer's disease. And so I had a pretty big job back then with a lot of visibility, but I was doing a whole bunch of everything in that job. And so now I get to dedicate my time to just helping people show up in the way that they want to. But yeah, it definitely informed the rest of my life, you know, and that quote, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I, I could not find that quote when I came out of the ICU and the doctors told me about what was going to be my life. They painted a really bleak picture of a ton of ton more surgeries, which I had, I had about 10 in total, a life of limitations, life of dependencies, a life of healthcare concerns. And so the going got tough, the tough, and when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I was just like, well, you know, this guy who used to be tough is now a victim. Mm. And that was my new narrative for the longest time. Now I try to put on this really brave face like, oh yes, this is great. You know, uh, and like rah, rah, but deep down inside, I was having a violent argument with reality and reality always wins those arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, I would just, especially when the a hospital got dark, right? When visiting hours were over and there was n- no one left in the hospital. So that energy was lost. So it was just me, my bed and my beeping machines and the television because the television in the hospital is always on. And I just sat there 
wondering like, why did this happen to me? I think I thought life was so unfair. All I saw was everything that I lost and I couldn't do anymore. And again, I was having this pretty violent, horrific argument with reality. I was not anywhere near uh, the whole state of acceptance. So what, what brought you forward then? Because I think that's, I'm glad you're sharing that part because I think by skipping over that part, it makes you seem like you're superhuman <laughs> to have gone through an experience like that and then suddenly be here talking about the positive effects of it. But, um, and, and I also just want to mention, I don't know if you've read this book, but your, your whole story makes me think of a book by Mo Gaudet, uh called Solve for Happy. Yes. And um, I interviewed him in episode 57. And, you know, he had this formula. Uh, he approached it as an engineer. He's an engineer for Google. Um, he had this formula for how he thought about happiness and he got um, tested on that when his son died and he and his wife had to respond. Like they found a way to respond using their deep beliefs around this formula. And it's like on the other side of it, he's just even more clear that that's what works, you know, that that's what got them through. And they, they were like counseling everyone else around them. who were coming to them to try to support the family. And the family is actually turning around and supporting the community and saying like, this is okay. This is how we need to move forward. This is what this means. This is how we're going to cherish our son's memory. So it seems like that you needed to find a way to make peace with what happens and carry it with you. I mean, you're not, it's not like you're distancing yourself. It's 20 years later, you're still talking about this day, you know? So obviously it's deeply held in you, but what was that pivot point? Well, so one, I just want to reference that book because I heard him speak at the World Happiness uh, Summit in 2017. And so there were a lot of great parallels to the story he was sharing and to the story I was living. And so I would say the big pivot for me, the big shift, if you will, was when they flew me back from New Jersey. I went to one hospital in the local area where I had to get skin graft operation uh, to close some of my wounds. And then they transferred me to the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, the place they took Christopher Reeves, the original Superman, at least in my opinion, uh, where he, when he had his equestrian event. And I was still, like, I was trying to get out of my funk, you know, but the thing is, this victim story, everyone around me validated it, right? So I got like, woe is me, look at me, look at my life. My identity was tipped upside down. It was shaken violently. And everyone gave me all the right sympathy and pity to validate the story. They're like, yeah, you're right. You are a victim. And that wasn't helping, right? I, I, underst- I understood the intent. Or at least I understand the intent now. Back then, I probably didn't really understand the intent, if I'm honest. Because I love the attention. What was me? What was Michael? And this victim story just sort of played on a, on a constant loop. And then I had a rehab session. It was just my typical rehab session, like a 90-minute session in the morning. And I had a moment where my therapist said, okay, take a break. And I was struggling. My mindset was off. Like I was trying to portray something strong on the outside. But inside, there was still that violent storm of worry and fear and bitterness and all that jazz. And I looked around the room and I, I sort of looked at all the other patients and I saw some people getting better and some people not. And I wondered why. And then I realized like, hey, Michael, it was a big pep talk. Like if you're going to become the person that you want to become, lose all this comparison, right? Because I back then I used to compare myself a lot to what everyone else had. And this is before social media, right? So this is 2001. So we didn't have Instagram or Facebook to put like the FOMO in us, right? I was just doing it based on work, like how much I was making, what my title was versus my peer group. And I decided like, all right, let's get serious. Like going gets tough, the tough get going. This is a chance to get going. And stop comparing and just like find your purpose. And and I made a determination then, Robbie. He's like, my purpose is to be one heck of a father, husband, and leader in person. That's all I wanted to become. That was it. Forget the titles, forget the money, forget the stuff, forget everything else. I just wanted to live into that aspiration for the future. And then, um, then, then that moment stopped, right? So I got back to my rehab session, but I went back to my bed because I was still in my wheelchair. So I got off the mat into my wheelchair and rolled myself back to my hospital bed. And then I started mapping out, okay, what are you going to do differently tomorrow? And the next day, I started what is now sort of my mindfulness meditation practice and my gratitude practice. Now, I didn't have like, again, I didn't, 
I didn't have any textbooks. I didn't really have like, I didn't, I didn't really have like any guides or, you know, uh, PDF downloads that will say like, you know, the 10 things you should do in the morning to be successful. I just started going with my gut, my intuition to say, okay, um, instead of focusing on everything that you didn't have and you can't do, let's start focusing in on the stuff that you still can do. You still have all in the spirit. Like we go where our eyes go. And I know I needed to shift my perspective if I was going to be able to shift my mindset and start getting better. And I also started thinking about like, hey, if we can worry ourselves sick, why can't we think ourselves well? Yeah, there's that phrase you just said, we go where our eyes go. That feels like a very cyclist perspective. <laughs> it is. It's, yeah, like going through a turn or going like a yeah. steer or race yeah. car driver, like if you're not, if you're looking right in the middle of the turn, you're going to go, like, you're going to go sort of straight through the yeah. turn and you're not going to make it. What you need to do is exaggerate your head tilt to get that bike around like a hairpin turn. Yeah. So I started tapping into some of that stuff that was, I was just sort of with, within me Yeah. because I had lived it as a, as a cyclist and that, but that, that next day, and this is the thing, like a lot of times, you know, we talk about like, well, what was your big aha? Right. And it's like, aha, and the, the clouds part and the sun shines and unicorns dance and there's an endless um, supply of Skittles for you. Well, later that day, I had to go to the orthopedic surgeon for my checkup and I really wanted to get clearance to put weight on my legs because I had been in my wheelchair. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. And when I went there, I got horrible news that I was not, my body was not healing quickly and I was devastated. And in that moment, it could have been so easy to go back to victim. And so I got in the ambulance again. It took me from the orthopedic uh, surgeon's office to again my hospital bed. And that was another big pep talk to say, okay, here's a moment. Here's a test, if you will. Call it universe or call it whatever. It's like you're going to go back to victim story or are you going to change your, you know, keep on changing your story that you're going to be resilient and do the things that resilient people do. And you're going to get up the next day and you're going to get back to like, you know, practicing mindfulness and gratitude and making, you know, putting in the effort to create a better tomorrow. So I started this mantra uh, on that. So I know that people listening have had uh, different moments in their life. Maybe they're living them right now where they feel kind of stuck. And it's so inspirational. This is, this is like why we, we crave stories like this where people have lived through hard times and come through. I, I'm curious to move us to the present day you know, you're doing this. I want to talk about the work you're doing. Um, but the way I want to ask you the question is a little different. I want to ask you, what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today? The, the thing that I find most rewarding is that when one of my clients calls me up and says, um, I'm going to get choked up on this too, um, which people won't be able to see, but hopefully people will be able to hear. When they call me up and they tell me, Hey, my spouse wants to thank you because they see a different person. Wow. Wow. So That's powerful. That So for me, and again, so my, actually, I'm not going to apologize for getting choked up because that's emotion and that's real. So, but to me, that, that is meaningful. Or maybe, you know, maybe someone's not married and they're just in a relationship or their friends see it. It's like that testimonial that's the one that like whew, fuels me like no end, right? Mm. That about you know like my my wife just told me like she sees a different I'm a different man in her eyes. Wow. I'm less anxious. I'm more present. I'm better at work, but you know what, Michael? I'm better at home. Like, and she sees that, or he sees that in me. To me, like that that you know that's golden and like we all get the testimonials like i know you have them and all your guests have them that they're the traditional like robbie did this michael did this talk and he was like so inspirational and stuff like that uh, and those are good I, I i could always use more <laughs> so i'm not you know i'm come on come on over but those were the the significant other or the partner sees the difference in my client Whew. 
that, that's that powerful. Was- and it also points to the fact that a lot of times uh, when people finally seek some sort of coach, they do so in the context of business. But the ripple effect with a good coach is that it impacts their whole life and it actually will transform who they are and how they are showing up at home and in their social circles because you're not actually, as much as we sometimes, especially busy people, divide ourselves into professional and personal, we are actually an integrated whole person. And so when you're able to help people realize that like all the important work you're doing with them really does sort of flow over into all aspects of their life. And it's a very powerful testimony to hear that. What's the different ways? Like, I know you do executive coaching and I'm sure guests, you know, I'm sorry, listeners will understand a little bit about that. But I also know you have a pretty unique program. Um, and I've talked to you about this a little bit before, but I've never heard anyone structure. It's a really cool, I feel like very well, God, you put so much effort into it. I kind of want to, I want to have your energy. <laughs> so so you, you have a few dozen people and they are meeting monthly and you're walking through like different topics. Yeah. So, well, uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. Cause it was, it's a total passion project of mine and it was born out of some of the conversations I was having with people who, you know, knew me or someone said, Hey, you should talk to Michael. It was back in December of 17. And they called me up and they said, Hey, Here's my situation. They were sort of in the middle of their organization. So manager title, maybe director title, maybe an emerging leader or an inspiring leader. And they're like, I really want to work with you. Like, I, you know, I read your book. Uh, I heard you on a podcast. I uh, heard your talk. But here's the thing. I don't rank high enough in my company to get a company-sponsored coach. And I don't have the discretionary money to pay for your services like a corporation would. So what do we do? And I was at the time, I was like, you know what? I have no idea. I'm like, you know, because I, I decided to get out of like sort of the business of like self-pay, you know, because I was mainly focusing my business on corporate, corporate leaders. But I said, you know what? I don't know now, but everything is figureoutable. You know, I think Marie Forio uh, says that best. Um, and I was like, I'm going to try to figure this out. And so I spent the first quarter of 18 figuring it out. And the funny thing about it is that I knew nothing about like membership communities at the start of 2018. And then I dove deep into it. I was like, oh, wow. Because a lot of the membership communities out there are sort of geared for the entrepreneur or, you know, like lifestyle, but nothing for corporate America. And I said, this is perfect because so many corporate America folks go through workshops. And I joke that a whole bunch of folks in corporate America have post-traumatic workshop disorder. They sit through workshops and then they, nothing changes. And I was like, we got we to gotta do something a little bit different in order to make change stick. So I created something called the Paceline um, Leadership Academy. So Paceline is another cycling metaphor, you know, sort of drafting in mind that we're better and faster together. And so what's in it is each month we take a theme. So last month we focused in on gratitude. This month, coaching. We're going to talk about networking, right, uh, here in a bit and profile your awesome book. And we also, so each month we give, I give them pieces of curated content that I go out and make it happen for them. And one of my clients said, Hey, it's sort of like blue apron for my career and my life. You bring us all the great ingredients. And so it's, it's a combination of video, podcast, blog. Everyone gets a, a hard copy of a book on the topic. We do a group conversation and then we also try to bring the author in. So we have, community and also bits of content that they can you know, dive into on their own time. So I, what I, how I structure it is just an hour a week. Cause I think if you're going to want to, if you want to live your life at a 10, right, get to mastery or try to get closer to mastery life or career or whatever, then we need to sort of invest in ourselves and work on ourselves. So, and I think if you, if you can't work on yourself, you know, an hour a week, you should probably be working 10 hours on yourself each week. So it's just an hour a week, every week. And we, again, we take a topic and we deep dive on it. And then they also have different courses that are self-paced. So around, do I know thyself? Um, Topics like conversational intelligence and emotional intelligence and time management and something I call energy leadership. So, you know, all right there for them. So they can take it whenever they want. And, 
again, we try to take a very holistic approach. Yes, it's going to help them immensely at work, but as important, it's going to help them in life. What's so amazing is that I don't think I realized, because uh, I'd, I'd heard of this and talked to you briefly about it, I didn't realize that it was only last year that you instituted it because it feels so fully formed. Um, you got 50 people in it and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what, you, what you're able to do. Like you said, you didn't know what, you know, left or right from membership <laughs> groups a year and a half ago. And here you are like creating it for yourself and diving into it. Um, and the fact that you mail, that really always stood out to me. The fact that you mail out a hard copy of the book to the members is significant to me. It was, it's, it's hugely significant to me because a lot of people have said, why are you doing that? That's, you know, a lot of people like give me like the little judgy thing, right? Like, well, like that's stupid. You're not being a smart entrepreneur. You should just like give them an ebook, give them a Kindle version or just like, you know, send it out. It's like through a distribution center. And for me, that moment each month where I take the book, I write a note to each of the members and package it up. For me, that's about connection to each one of those members in, you know, in, in, in a moment of gratitude, a moment of thanks of saying, hey, thanks for, you know, thanks for trusting me. Thanks for the connection. Thanks for being part of our Peloton together. And yeah, I, I will always send them a hard copy of the book. Now, some people are like, Is it, can I have it in Audible, right? So, but, but I, want the, I want the hard copy of the book because if they're not going to necessarily read it, uh, because maybe they like to listen to Audible. That's cool. Or they can gift. They can give it away. They can gift it. Uh, but for me, it's that moment of like putting the whole package together and the personalization of it. Because um, you know they're um, they're making a choice in terms of how they want to spend their time and also invest their money. And I'm forever grateful for everyone that wants to come on on a board and be part of this Peloton that we're creating and trying to create a better tomorrow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I feel like we have to pause and help people understand Peloton, another cycling term that you're weaving into your business. So a Peloton. So a lot of times when I do talks, you know, they're like, and we got our guest speaker and it's Michael O'Brien from Peloton. And the word Peloton sort of drifts out into the air. And for a moment, everyone's like, Oh my God, it's like Peloton cycles. those spinning bikes you see on TV with all like the fit models and, Everyone seems to live in East Hampton. So, um, and, and then they say Peloton coaching, and there's a there's a little bit of like, oh, well, what's that? So, uh, so for me, a Peloton obviously is a, a group of cyclists in a bike race. So, big Tour de France, all those cyclists, you know, riding their bikes through, you know, the Alps and whatnot. That's a Peloton, and they need leadership, trust, collaboration, communication to go down the road as fast and as safe as possible. And some of those same qualities are needed at work. So for me, it's another metaphor for tribes at work. And I came up with it when I was in the hospital. I was in my hospital bed and I had all these medical folks like rushing around me, trying to help me. And I went to my wife. I said, well, they're sort of like my medical Peloton. And in that moment, I was like, oh, that's the name of my company. And I wrote it down. I mean, my company one day is going to be called Peloton Coaching. Nice. And, and so I've, I've had it, you know, had it going for a number of years. It took 13 years of watering and fertilizing from that moment to create it because I, I came back to work on my own terms and grew my corporate career in my own way. And then Peloton Cycles came out with a much bigger advertising budget and I'm thankful to them because they brought the word Peloton into the public domain. But I often get questions, you know, like they come up to me, they might see like my name and the name of the company. And a lot of people say, Hey, I'm about to buy one of your bikes. And I'm like, a different company. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, so I have a lot of good fun with it. So it's, um, it's, yeah, but it's my little thing. It's my little metaphor, my little play off of the word tribes that we often. Yeah, no, I like it. And I think you're right. Like as someone who's cycled, um, you know, even just like the whole car back debris glass, like you, you're doing that. You know, you're already past the, you know, the debris, um, you know, but you are saying it to the people behind you because that's what you do. There's, there's like a, a community aspect to it. So I, I want to kind of shift a little bit again, you know, because this is a show about building relationships and you have done a fantastic job um, on this. 
I mean, we were actually originally uh, told we had to meet each other by uh, Tammy Guler-Loeb, who I interviewed for the show as well. I'll put her link in the show notes. And um, she interviewed you on, on her show. Yes. Now, Tammy's awesome. I, and I've met her through the great work uh, through an, uh, the alt podcasters, sort of a derivative of the alt MBA by Seth Godin. And so yeah. I, I love Tammy. I lo- love her spirit, love, love what she does, how she shows up in life. Yeah, her, so her show is called Work from the Inside Out. Uh, she launched it in the last year. Um, so how do you think about nurturing and sustaining relationships, connections, not with like your closest uh, group, but like the second and third layers out, the people that you see once in a while, or you meet at a conference and then you see again a year later at a conference or colleagues you used to work with because you're no longer in that field. Like how do you... What are your habits or philosophies or practices around that kind of community building, sustaining those relationships? Well, one thing, back in the day, I wasn't very good at it. You know, so I I never really paid much attention to it because I was at a company. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be at this company until I get my gold watch. So I just have to build my network within my company. And I think that happens a lot for people. They're, you know, they, they tend to be so busy doing that they never feel like they have time for networking. And so my, my suggestion to people, the advice I'd wish, wish to share today is like, you know, carve out time to build your Peloton, to build your network, because you need to do it upstream because there's going to be a moment in time where you're going to need it. And when you need it, it's too late to start building your network. So for me, what I've done over time is be much more mindful and intentional about carving out that time. So not only it's my first degree connections, if we're thinking about LinkedIn, but all those second and third degree um, connections and trying to nurture those and be part of groups where I can come in contact with other people and try to make my Peloton, if you will, as diverse as possible. You know, Mm. obviously we have a lot of unconscious bias and we tend to group with, you know, like-minded people who may also look like us. But I really tried to force myself, and again, this wasn't always the case, but throughout the years and learning from my recovery, trying to diversify my experiences, but also diversify who's in my Peloton, where I don't, I don't necessarily have to agree with everyone. But I, I do want people around me who can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm. That can challenge my perspective and worldview, because I think we need a lot of that. Right. So how how the people that can sharpen, you know, sharpen iron, if you will, and challenge like how we see the world. And I think that allows us to step into um, more empathy, maybe some more vulnerability, exercise a little bit more courage. So I purposely carve out time each week now to do just that, uh, to read and watch and listen to things that I normally wouldn't. Yeah. So one of the things you just mentioned was the idea of, um, I love that you're emphasizing the diversifying of that network. Um, But you also talked about like getting involved with different groups. I I know that one of the things, and you and I haven't talked a lot about this, but um, my focus for my coaching program is entrepreneurial women. Um, One-on-one, I've coached people of any gender, but um, I think, you know, working with women in groups has been fantastic and they, they love the space. I feel privileged to be on the journey with them. And I came to realize that you're also doing something similar, but in a different field. So how did you end up in that space? Again, being like, you know, here you are, this white guy, (laughs) like, you know, without effort, you would just be surrounded by other people who looked like you, right? Like, without effort. Yeah. Without, yeah, like other, other white dudes that, you know, shave their legs and ride their bikes, right? So like, as cyclists do. Well, back in 2003, one of, um, one of the um, senior leaders in my company got recognized by the Healthcare Business Women's Association. So that's an advocacy group for female leaders within healthcare. So think agencies, pharma, bio, hospital systems, you name it. And I went to the luncheon where it was the award ceremony, again, mentor of the year, about 2,500 people, mainly women. And I was moved emotionally. Like I was, I was doing that thing that guys sort of do, like listen to a talk and you're like playing with your lip and your tongue and you're like, you know, you're pretending you have allergies, but I was, 
I was really moved by the resilience that many of the women in, uh, you know, that were being honored had, right? The perseverance, all those great qualities I just love about people. And I was moved and I was going to join that organization, you know, back or actually earlier in 2001 then I had my accident. But in 2003, I finally joined. And I joined sort of in name, sort of almost in name only. And then I went to my very first annual conference. So this was a meeting in Chicago, 700 women at the time. And I decided to go. I was like, well, I'm going to go to this conference. And Robbie, I walked in and I've shared the story with the membership. I walked in to get my name badge. And in a moment, I felt, I felt like everyone was watching me. And they were like looking at me, like, who invited the guy? Like, why is a guy here? Because 700 women, maybe like 10 guys, and the other 10 guys were all vendors, right? Trying to sell the women something. And I really got in my head, like imposter syndrome, worry, anxiety, you name it. And I was like, what are you doing here? Like, everyone's looking at you. Everyone's wondering. And here's the thing. Like, no one was looking at me. No one was wondering. But I was behaving like, you know, I was just behaving small. Like, when the general session started, I purposefully waited until the lights went down so I could sneak into the back at a table where, where not many people were there. I was, I was just playing small the whole meeting. And I didn't really live or lean into the meeting and on the flight back i really thought about my behavior and i wondered i wondered like well what's it like for those in the minority back of the office because what i realized was that that in that moment i was in the minority like you know because white guys in business we rarely are in the minority now it's changing over time but back in the day like you know it's a bunch of other white men around the conference room table and so I really thought about that whole flight back. I didn't do any work at all, Chicago to New York. And I just sort of thought about like, how am I showing up at work? And how, how do others who may be in the minority show up at work? And what am I doing to build culture and giving them the space where they can communi- share their voice? Am I really doing all I can to help them be seen? And the answer to those questions was like, no, I'm not doing enough, right? Because... Um, and I don't think we're doing enough as a society, even current day. Like, I th- you know, I think we, as leaders, we need to give space so everyone has a voice. Everyone is seen. We lead with compassion, not fear, not hierarchy. And that was, that was a seminal moment in my leadership development, or, you know, in terms of empathy and vulnerability and courage, what I've just mentioned before. And I started getting, getting more and more involved in the group. And then in 2014, when I started my business, I decided to put in some sweat equity and just volunteer. And then at the start of this year, I became the first male president of a chapter in their 41-year history. And wow. it was it was like a little bit of like, oh my God. And I, and I wondered, you know, there was a part of me that really hesitated. They asked me to do it. And I was like, really? I'm like, Healthcare Business Women's Association, you know, guy taking over the role, what are people going to say? Because I was like, am I taking a role that another leader, a female leader, could take? And they said, no, you're the right person. I was like, okay, I'm going to take it. We're going to trailblaze. And I've been loving it, right? And I also, though, know it's a huge responsibility. Because what I want to do is try to bring more men into the conversation. Because with advocacy groups, if we're just sharing the data about what's wrong... (laughs) in the world, we're almost like preaching to the choir. So I want the group to be as diverse as possible so we can have um, a more comprehensive conversation about gender parity and equality and opportunity. Because if, if we just sit in a conference room and we talk about how women are paid or not paid, as the case is, or not given opportunities, then again, we leave and we're like, we get all riled up and we get, you know, preaching to the choir, but we don't necessarily bring about the change that we need to bring about. So. My goal during, you know, my leadership of this chapter is to bring more diversity into the mix so we can have a better conversation. Well, and this is always the catch-22 with groups like that is um, groups do need spaces to talk amongst themselves, rant, share the private frustrations. But for action and for true advocacy, 
You need decision makers to hear their voices and to amplify their need. You need people to be sponsoring them um, beyond men, men, you know, mentorship, but like true advocates of their work, sponsorship of their work, um, in order for that to like produce the desired effect and and change policy and change culture. And so you're you know such an interesting story because in this moment you're a bridge builder, and I love that this was a. Uh, such a, a another sort of pivotal moment for you to like see yourself in that minority role helps you have that empathy for others who every day can you know they can't they can't leave their minority role behind like you walked out of that annual meeting and you're back into the society of which you are you know the dominant culture but you were like that you didn't let that go that feeling i think that's a profound shift i was part of the national organization for men against sexism, and um, we had a local chapter in Boston that I I co-chaired and ran for a number of years, and like, that was a space where I really came to terms with a lot of that, like because we were working around racial justice, LGBT equality, um, pro-feminism, and enhancing men's lives, and it was just a to hold all those things in tension. It was such a powerful experience being community with men who were living that and were like bringing their identities fully into that where women were supporting us, but saying like, this is your work to do, man. Like you need to be doing this work. Um, it's a profound shift that you had. And then 15 years later, look at you. <laughs> I know it's, it's, you know, it's, it's been an incredible journey, but you're right. Like that, that airplane flight back from Chicago, much like that big moment, once I had my big aha in my recovery, right? And I had like that moment where I could have gone back to victimhood. Yeah, I, I said, I, I don't want to lose this moment. Just like I didn't want to lose the moment on the airplane because as soon as I landed the very next day, I'm back in the office and now I'm in, I'm in the my majority again and I have all the influence and power as a, a white guy. And it would have been really easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was just a, that was a few days in Chicago. We'll just go back to living living your life the way you've been living. But, you know, it's, it goes back to, I think Maya Angelou said it, like, when you know better, you, you need to do better. And I'm like, I like, like, I, I live something. I really, I felt something because really emotions drive behavior, right? I felt what it felt like to be in the minority. And I had, you know, I had an escape hatch, right? Because I could go back, right? But I was like, I, it would be so disrespectful not to take action, you know, off of those emotions, off of that experience. And I say that as a father of two daughters, but, you know, and that was sort of the entry point in, like I became involved because I wanted to do something for my daughters to create a better tomorrow for them. But by that time, by the time 2006 came around, I just did it because it was really smart because it's just, it's a smart thing to do. It's a kind thing to do to treat every brother and sister out there with the same type of respect that we would have for anybody, regardless yeah. of background or color or gender or you name it. Like we are, we are better together. And for me, it was like trying to live, like that's what makes a Peloton a Peloton is that you have diversity and we don't necessarily all think the same, but we're all, we're all together. We're all riding the same roads of life, if you will. I love the, how you're able to keep weaving in all these metaphors. You're so good at it. I, I, we could spend all day, Robbie, talking about cycling metaphors, but I, I, I think you might lose a whole bunch of listeners. So, <laughs> so this is one of my favorite questions, and it is a wrap-up question. Um, Michael, I know we're going to stay in touch, but let's say we are connecting a year from now, and we are celebrating all of your successes. What are we going to be toasting to? What are you looking forward to in the next year? Well, from a practical point of view, like building out my leadership academy and speaking more, but more importantly, when I go out and do something, whether it's my coaching or the leadership academy or speaking, my goal really is just to reach one person. Like if I, if I can reach one person in the audience, I'm really happy because I know that one person will send a beautiful ripple effect to the people in their lives. So what I hope a year from now that we're doing, and that's, a, that's the intentionality of all my work, is that we're celebrating a whole bunch of ripples. You know, sort of like that stone you toss in the pond and how beautiful that ripple effect is. And hopefully it's more than one stone, you know, and the number could be whatever. I'm not really 
so concerned about that. But I do believe like energy carries energy ripples. And if we can put positive energy out into the world, we can make this world a better world. And that's what I hope we can raise a glass to. That's all really awesome. So Michael, where can people find you and follow your work? The best place to start is michaelobrienshift.com. From there, you can connect with me on social media, send me an email, give me a call, uh, buy a copy of Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows. And when you do, all the proceeds go to charity. So when you buy a copy of Shift, hopefully you'll find a pearl or two in it to live your life a bit better, manage your career a bit better. But you also give the gift of mobility to one girl half a planet away so she can conquer the challenge of distance. You give her a bicycle so she can stay in school and eventually have economic vitality, just like we do here in the States. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, Michael. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me. And I hope your listeners got a little bit of um, a, a few tools in their toolbox. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Michael. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 137. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. I also wanted to let you know that the next cohort of the MORE program for entrepreneurial women kicks off next month. If you've wondered about working with me, Email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com for a complimentary session, and we'll see if we're a good fit. There's only going to be room for four women in this cohort. Will you be one of them? If you enjoyed this episode with Michael, please share it with your friends, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.